and Paris who joined NCATS in January of 2017 as the director for the Office of Rare Diseases Research, ORDR. Dr. Pariser comes to NCATS from the FDA, where she worked since 2000 on the development of drug and biological products for rare diseases. Dr. Pariser also served as an associate director in the FDA's Office of Translational Science, which is part of the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, CDER. Dr. Pariser, it's a pleasure to see you this morning at Bio. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. You've been involved in the orphan and rare world for nearly 20 years. From the perspective of NCATS and FDA, what is an orphan condition and why are they treated differently than normal conditions? So an orphan or rare condition is defined under uh, U.S. law as less than 200,000 people in the U.S. with the disorder or the condition. So it was first defined in 1983 under the Orphan Drug Act and affirmed under the Rare Disease Act of 2002. Mm-hmm. So, but the reality is uh, most rare diseases are far less prevalent than that. Yeah. And most are in the few hundreds to few thousands. And after, um, it was actually the U.S. was the first to define an orphan disease, and there have been a number of countries that have followed on thereafter, Japan, Europe, Australia, a lot of companies around the world. The prevalence is a little different where you go in the world, but for the most part, because the prevalence is so much lower than that, an orphan condition in the U.S. is usually an orphan condition elsewhere as well. And in 1983, it was put in place. What was the reason for putting it in place? What was the motivation? Well, at that time, there were very few drugs that were approved in the U.S. for orphan conditions. Statistics that are are quoted, there was about 10 rare disease approvals in the 10 years prior to the Orphan Drug Act, and it was just going too slowly. And at, at that time, the difficulty was felt to be that there really weren't uh, financial incentives available to develop these drugs for such small populations. And what specifically are the incentives that allow uh, someone then to enter the orphan market? In the U.S., there's a number of um, incentives under the Orphan Drug Act. The uh, most attractive is if your drug is orphan designated and you receive approval, then you have seven years of market exclusivity for your product. Which means that nobody else can come in on that indication whilst you're there. They cannot come in for that indication for that drug, for the same drug. But then can they do a competitor or something in a a novel delivery? So if you're doing an injectable, can they do an inhalant or things like that? Um, What's the definition there? That depends. It can be a different product Mm -hmm. or, and sometimes if they can demonstrate clinical superiority, then they can get uh, um, the ability to market. What do you think would have happened had, in 1983, the orphan drug legislation not been passed from a patient perspective? What would we be looking at now? Yeah, it's, re- it's really hard to say. Well, of course, um, it's a projection. Yeah, it's a projection, but I think we and can... And I'm not asking you for government policy here, so... <laughs> well, I think we can look at the numbers. Sure. And uh, so I mentioned the 10 drugs in 10 years prior to the passage of the Orphan Drug Act. Um, we now have, uh, I looked this morning, there are 793 or almost 800 orphan drugs that have been approved in the U.S. And in the past year, in 2018, there were 117. So um, on average, that's about 30 a year, but that's been increasing. And do you think it's increasing? Obviously, as science is leading to more targeted indications and we're leading to more stratified populations, we're even talking now about a stratification approach to Alzheimer's disease. Is it inevitable that more and more orphans will come to market just as the end is going to get smaller because that's the where science is leading us? Yeah, un- undeniably science is leading in that direction and we probably will be seeing more of this as uh, advances in genomics and our ability to s- target uh, very elegantly, target with precision medicine and even now personalized medicine for these patients. 
there's still the problems, uh, the research problems of um, developing drugs for small populations, though. Which is, you know, how do you get the clinical evidence and the efficacy? Right. There's a lot of challenges for research with rare diseases. Obviously, they're rare. There aren't a lot of people with these disorders. We also have very few disease experts. People tend to be very geographically dispersed. And the foundational science, what's understood about the disease for many of our diseases isn't really there. And these are all a result of of the rarity. So that presents some additional challenges. Now, you spent a good chunk of time at FDA, and you've just recently moved over to NCATS. NCATS started with the primary mission to act as sort of a tech transfer body for lost or discarded molecules for repurposing. How successful has that effort been in rare diseases? Actually, NCATS was created for a variety of reasons, and uh, the repurposing, what you noted, was one of them. Sure. It's predominantly now focusing on the translational process. So we're disease agnostic. We don't focus on any one particular disease, and our, our patient, if you will, is the research process. So it's trying to improve and accelerate bringing discoveries in the lab and in the clinic uh, to try to accelerate those to make treatments for patients. And, and what's been going on then in NCATS and rare diseases specifically? Oh, we have a lot of things going on. Okay. <laughs> so, the floor is yours. So um, <laughs> uh, one, one of our emphasis is on team science, multidisciplinary mm-hmm. approaches. So we've been running, one of our programs we've been running for about 15 years is the Rare Disease Clinical Research Network. So this is a network of consortia that are clustered around three or more rare diseases. Then there's a unifying data management center. So through this model, we currently have 21 consortia, and we're able to cover more than 200 rare diseases. Well, that's interesting. And where are the consortia located? Are they are they area-specific, or are they disease-specific? Uh, they're clustered around a rare disease concept. Okay. So, for example, it can be an organ, like rare lung disease. We have a rare lung disease consortia, or an organelle. Uh, we have a mitochondrial uh, disorders network. We have a lysosomal network or mutations, a mutation-specific consortia. So people have been very creative in putting together these consortia. They just have to have some unifying theme that will help promote research in a number of diseases rather than the one disease at a time. So let's say someone wants to put a consortia together for Parkinson's, for example, or neurological disorders. What would be the process then to work with NCATS and have this happen practically? So we have a funding announcement. They're in five-year cycles, Mm -hmm. and investigators would propose a concept for a rare disease, and they would submit that to us, and then it would undergo the usual peer review process. Mm-hmm. Getting back to sort of the orphan conditions specifically, according to a report made by NPR in 2017, seven of the ten best-selling medicines today are for rare conditions, and orphan drug status should then no longer be needed. This is becoming sort of a popular opinion now. Do you think that's true, that we could get rid of it and it wouldn't have an impact? I think it's very important to remember that we're dealing with right now about 7,000 different rare diseases and only about 5% of them have treatments. So that's about 95% (laughs) that really don't have anything and very few of them actually have research going on. These disorders, they tend to be serious. Most of them are inherited. Most of them affect children or young people, uh, adolescents, uh, young adults, and many of them are, are really quite devastating. So I think there remains just substantial needs, substantial unmet needs for this population. If you had any recommendations or changes you would like to see from NCAT's perspective to the current orphan drug legislation, what would you like to see happen? What do you think we can do to make it better? 
Well, I think as you mentioned earlier, I mean, proposing legislation is out of NIH scope, but sure. as you mentioned earlier, this is the way the science is going. And legislation often tends to be responsive to what's going on in science or in the health community. For example, there was initiative in the past uh, year or so for opioid epidemic. Sure. So um, it was responsive to that. So I think it was uh, often attributed to Niels Bohr. He said it's difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. So, yeah. <laughs> so we don't always know which way the science is going to go, but I would expect we would respond as the science changes. Do you see more international collaboration working on international borders just to try and get the numbers up and make this a little more practical? Yeah, that is usual for rare diseases. Most of our consortia that I mentioned, they have uh, international partners just because that's where the, the patients are and we have to get our numbers up, but also most people working in rare diseases do work internationally. Do you think the focus now on real world evidence and real world data will help accelerate the process? Are we finding better niches? Are we moving more quickly to identify pathways to hit some of these targets? Is it, is it improving? Yes, it, it absolutely is. <laughs> okay. and it's, it's improving on a number of fronts. I mean, certainly these vast uh, advances in genomic analysis has just been a real boon. And this is continuing. And the real world evidence or pulling medical history out of the medical record, that's largely aspirational right now, but it's coming. And that's really seen uh, as kind of a holy grail of putting together natural history for a lot of these rare diseases, which, as I mentioned, are poorly described. So this is an area we're actively looking into. How can we pull information that already exists? How can we identify patients with rare disorders who are undiagnosed, which is probably a fair proportion of the population. So if you have what you're doing, you've got CTTI, the Clinical Transformation Initiative, you've got Dr. McClellan's team at Duke, how much collaboration do you see between the various bits and bobs that are running around the policy space in Washington and Bethesda? Yeah, there's quite a bit of collaboration. Um, There's lots of partners. For example, there's the rare disease uh, catalyst at UNC, Europe, also has uh, large rare disease initiatives, as does Japan. Australia, as well, has been very involved in the orphan space. So uh, these are people we communicate with regularly. We try to put together collaborations and work on common areas of science uh, as much as we can. So five years from now, where do you think we're going to be in the orphan space? We're going to see continuing acceleration? More and more drugs? We absolutely are. It's, <laughs> it's the biggest uh, growth area, really, in science. And as, as I tell my colleagues all the time, we have the coolest science. But um, <laughs> FDA has, FDA CBER has a more than 200 active INDs right now just for gene therapy. 200? Yes. Now, wow. obviously, not all of those are, are going to make it. But just uh, the research in that area is just tremendous. And we're just seeing some incredible results in, in some areas, and this is very exciting. I mean, I think we have to think right now with the advances in science that really almost anything is possible for rare diseases. Is the system ready for it, though? Because we're having a lot of pushback, you know, the, the one-and-done gene cure, and some of the prices are quite eye-popping. I mean, what's going to need to happen to make this reality? I think it comes back to what I was saying earlier about these uh, collective approaches and getting away from this one disease at a time. So um, we at NCATS actually are looking into platform approaches where we can consider multiple genes or multiple vectors at the same time. In the oncology space, they're really leading the way with this. Uh, Basket uh, trials, umbrella trials, platforms. These are all ways to make the clinical development more efficient, but also the the manufacturing and the preclinical process as well. So I think this is the way we have to turn to. We have a lot of small diseases right now, so now how do we make fewer diseases? Sure. 
find common underlying molecular etiologies and try to consider them in the same research program. So these are areas that we're looking into right now. Dr. Pariser, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you.